Alrighty, well, this is Letter to the Americans week uh, six. I think this will be the reading for week six. Coming from Peter Lightheart's Delivered from the Elements of the World. I'm recording this at home, so you might hear my grandma's dog at some point. And uh, that's just too bad, because I'm not going to try and edit her out. So, <clears throat> the chapter is entitled, Cur Deus Homo, which is the Latin phrase for Why the God-Man. Here is my story of the atonement. Adam and Eve were created good, and were given abundant life with access to God's earthly house, the garden in the east of Eden. They were created flesh, weak, vulnerable, dependent. Adam was a child servant in the garden, forbidden to eat from the tree of knowledge, which signified mature kingship and participation in God's judicial rule of the creation. Some day he and Eve would be transformed from flesh to spirit, receive their full inheritance as son and daughter, and enter more fully into communion with their creator. For the time being, as good creatures, they were under ta stokeat to Cosmu, which means the elements of the world, until the time set by the Father. Out of fleshly impatience to transcend flesh, Adam sinned. In the jealous wrath that expresses his wounded love, Yahweh delivered Adam's flesh over to death. Created flesh became mortal flesh, and the fear of mortality, vulnerability, and loss drove human beings to sin. Sins of weakness, but also sins of self-protective violence and retaliation. As Paul puts it in Romans 5, when sin entered the world, death began to reign, and under the reign of death, sin spread to fleshly humanity. After the fall, the Creator no longer met with human beings to feast with them in his garden. His house became off-limits, a holy place from which sinful, unclean humans were excluded. Taste not, touch not, originally a program for children, expanded to become a restrictive pedagogy or rule of life for rebellious children. All humanity operated under these restrictions. All ancient civilizations cultivated habits and imposed rules governing sacred space, purity, sacrifice, and priesthood. Under these circumstances, no fully just social order could take hold. Until the exile from Eden was overcome, human life could not flourish. Shadowy justice, forced to limit violence, confinement to flesh, that is the best humans could hope for. God is just and is determined to establish just order, peace, and abundant life in his creation. He is determined not to let humans despoil themselves or his world. If justice is to reign, if humanity is to be rescued, saved from sin, death, flesh, and itself, then flesh has to be remade, and so does the stochaic system that is ordered to flesh. Stochaic system meaning the elemental realities, clean, unclean, holy, common, that sort of thing. From the moment of the fall, he began his ages-long war against and prosecution of flesh. In the flood, Yahweh waged war against flesh by destroying humanity, but even after the flood, human beings were still in the grip of flesh. Babel introduced yet another division within human life. After Babel, humans were not only excluded from God's presence, but also divided from one another. Flesh was divided not only from spirit, but also flesh from other flesh. Egypt, Babylon, Greece, and Rome, all the great civilizations of the ancient world developed fleshly culture, hero systems founded on the fear of death, on phallic display, on violence, honor, and vengeance. All set up systems of blood and ancestry. The privileged were those who had the right sort of flesh. These systems and structures were the basic physics of antique social life. After the curse of Babel, Yahweh continued his war on flesh by beginning an anti-sarchic or anti-flesh pedagogy within one family, cutting off and discarding flesh from within the human race, enlisting one nation among the nations to join him in his anti-sarchic campaign. 
The sign of circumcision indicated that God was at work to kill flesh without killing fleshly humans. Within a world operated by elementary principles, Yahweh introduced a new form of the systems or elements of the world, which, while being accommodated to fleshly conditions, still targeted flesh. By circumcision, Yahweh formed a new kind of human being, those who were Jewish physically. Circumcision is a parody of a tribal tattoo in that it discards flesh instead of enhancing it. Circumcision separated Israel from the Babelic world of division. By circumcision, Israel died to the culture of death that surrounded it. Torah, or the law, expanded the Abrahamic campaign against flesh. Torah introduced norms of behavior, a pedagogy and story, liturgy, institutional structures, and song, an order for Israel's life as a people. Torah functioned as a written constitution for Israel, so that life under the law meant inhabiting the material, ritual, and symbolic world that the written Torah laid out. Torah was delivered in post-fall, post-Babel conditions, and set Israel apart as a new Adamic people, with real though limited access to an Adenic sanctuary, and real though limited means for overcoming the divisions that sundered the nations after Babel. Torah enlisted Israel into Yahweh's campaign against flesh for justice. Torah established a system of holiness and purity, the temple and sacrifice, that enabled Israel to draw near to the Creator during the time of their childhood while they existed in flesh. Yahweh set up his holy space within Israel, a house of prayer for all nations, where he called the nations to worship the one God. Yahweh invited Israel to visit, to eat, drink, and rejoice in his presence. Entering the garden again was dangerous. One could draw near only by passing through the sword and fire of the cherubim. Under Torah, the curse of Edenic exile was partially overcome as priests entered holy space to minister on Israel's and the nation's behalf, and as the sacrifices of Israelites were turned to smoke to slip past the cherubim into Yahweh's presence. The purity rules were rules of access, setting the conditions under which fleshly Israel could draw near to God. Sacrifice involved the substitutionary death of the animal, but that was only a step on the path toward transfiguration into Yahweh's fire. Neither Israel nor the Gentiles were yet sufficiently grown up to have full access to his house or his treasures, but they were allowed to draw near. Torah was a pedagogy for Israel, a pedagogy of approach, a pedagogy of welcome, a pedagogy that inculcated the protocols for life in the presence of God. Torah was a campaign in Yahweh's war against flesh, but Torah itself was powerless to overcome flesh. It checked the worst effects of flesh, but it was accommodated to Adamic conditions and was susceptible to co-optation by fleshly instincts and aims. Gentiles employed their Stochaic order to support claims of racial superiority and to dominate other nations. Though many faithful Jews kept the humble faith of Abraham, teachers in Judaism turned Torah itself into a weapon of bondage. Jews came to boast in the absent flesh of circumcision. They used purity rules to exclude other Israelites and Gentiles, they imposed burdens rather than relieving them. Torah was good and spiritual, but in the hands of fleshly Israel, it became an instrument of oppressive injustice. In practice, Torah did not control flesh, but intensified its desires and its violence. Instead of combating and overcoming the curses of Babel and Eden, Israel sharpened those divisions and so came under the curse of the Torah. Since Israel was to be God's instrument for bringing life and righteousness to the nations, the curse on Israel created what N.T. Wright describes as a traffic jam that prevented the blessing of Abraham from flowing to the nations. Since Israel was supposed to be advancing Yahweh's anti-Sarkic campaign, their submission to flesh meant that flesh reigned supreme not only in the nations, but also in Israel itself. 
If Yahweh was to save his creation, he had to deal with this complex of problems. Adam's fall into death, the reign of flesh and sin, the stochaic pattern of life that intensified the reign of sin, and now the fall of Israel into flesh. Jesus came announcing that God was going to establish his kingdom through the son of David, Jesus himself. Through Christ, God would deal a death wound to flesh and demolish stochaic order and bring in his reign of justice among all nations. What Torah provided, proved incapable of doing, God was able to, was about to do, condemning sin in the flesh, but at the same time transforming flesh to make it susceptible to the life of the Spirit. God did not send another flood. Instead of destroying flesh by destroying humanity, God in Christ targeted flesh and condemned it to death. Jesus brought God's warfare, his prosecution of flesh, to its climax and sealed the case against it. Jesus enacted all that the Torah had aimed at. Jesus was conceived by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, driven by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. In flesh he lived by the Spirit. As Yahweh he came out from behind the temple curtains into Israel's flesh, and like Yahweh at the tabernacle, Jesus offered access, welcome, festivity, and hospitality. To draw near, Jesus was tantamount to drawing near to the temple. Anyone who ate with Jesus at the table was closer to Yahweh than any priest had ever been. Those who drew near to Jesus were purified by the finger of God, the touch of the king that communicated the purifying and sanctifying power of the Spirit. Wherever Jesus went, Eden was realized again, an Eden of open access and abundance, the very thing that Torah aimed at and partially achieved. Jesus welcomed Gentiles and healed and ate with them too, thus fulfilling the promise to Abraham. Babel was being overcome at the table of Jesus. Jesus taught the way of justice, a righteousness that surpassed the scribes, and so around Jesus a community of followers formed, living by the Torah of Jesus. A nucleus of a just human society was taking form around Jesus, a community beyond the stochaic restrictions of fleshly humanity, a community animated by Jesus and his spirit. In Jesus' ministry, the day set by the Father was fulfilled, the day when the children were released from their bondage to the elements of the world. Since the Lord of the house himself had appeared, since the elder brother had been sent, the minor children were ready to enter into full, into full sonship and to inherit the spirit that Jesus himself bore. Why wasn't that enough? Why could Jesus not simply come and introduce a new way of life, teach people to offer a new form of sacrifice and loving self-gift, tell people that they needed only to live in moral purity, instruct them that the restricted access of the temple and priestly order was over? Why could he not be another Moses and simply bring in the new covenant from a pulpit? Why did he have to die to realize this new order of things? Why did he have to die to release the children from their bondage to the elements? to bring in a new human nature, and to introduce a new social physics of salvation. We can answer these questions counterfactually. What if Jesus had only taught Israel a different way of worship and life? What if he had convinced Israel to adopt the pattern of life that he taught and lived? Even then, stochaic order would have been doomed. Stochaic order presumes the curses of Eden and Babel. It is an order accommodated to a human race outside Eden, a human race divided by flesh. If Jesus had convinced Israel to live as if they had re-entered Eden, the structures of the elements would have become useless. But it could not have worked, because if Jesus had not died, no human would have re-entered Eden. Eden could only be re-entered, or could be re-entered, only by passing through the cherubic sword and fire, only through death and transfiguration. If Jesus had been nothing but a teacher, if he had died a peaceful death in bed, he would not have fulfilled the sacrifices of Israel. 
Without death and resurrection, he could not have made a way into the presence of the God who is a consuming fire. Apart from his death and resurrection, there is no transfiguration of human nature from flesh to spirit. Jesus could have taught Israel that taste not, touch not prohibitions were no longer valid, that God was no longer going to meet with them from behind a curtain, that all of them would be priests with access to holy food and holy places, that the people themselves were a temple, that the whole Stochaic order had been transposed into the key of the Spirit, but without his death and resurrection, then that new order would have been imposed on a fleshly human race. Without the cross, flesh would not have been condemned for derailing Torah. There would have been no judgment passed on flesh. There would have been no liberating verdict of resurrection. Jesus himself would not have passed from flesh to spirit. And if Jesus did not, no one else would have either. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, humanity would still be outside Eden looking in, still under the wrath of expulsion, too afraid of the cherubic sores to get close. Jesus had to take the curse of Eden and of Israel to himself, to suffer the death of re-entry, so that he could make a way for others to follow. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, there would be no spirit and flesh. The institutional reconfiguration brought about by the atonement can be effective only if human nature is transformed from flesh to spirit. By the same token, the transformation of human nature takes hold in social life only if institutional changes, changes of practice and symbol, accompany it. For Paul, in fact, this very distinction makes little sense. For him, physis, or nature, and namas, law or cultural order, are intertwined. To live by a certain law or cultural order is to have a certain nature, and vice versa. To be delivered from one socio-religious world to another is to undergo a change of nature. According to Paul, the cross and resurrection transfigured human life, translating those who receive Christ from flesh to spirit, from the law of condemnation to the justifying law of the spirit from the pedagogy of elementary things to the way of Christ. By the cross and resurrection, Jesus takes the two natures of Jew and Gentile, mixes the elements, and comes out with a new chemical combination, Christian nature, a spiritual community made up of those born by spirit. In fact, Jesus spent most of his public ministry teaching and enacting a new way, but the rulers and authorities of this world, those who were part of the civilization of Torah and those who were not, would not let him get away with it. Flesh had taken over Torah, and because Torah was employed for the sake of flesh, it could not allow Jesus to bring the law of the spirit of life. Jesus was killed because he was considered a rebel against Torah, because he claimed authority to purify and heal, because of his lordly act in the temple. Jews wanted Jesus dead because he threatened the elemental system they considered the unchanging physics of religion and society. Romans wanted Jesus dead in order to protect the peace and calm of a bit of the Eastern Empire, and to vindicate Roman power and Roman honor. Torah and Roman justice were both commandeered by flesh into a supreme act of injustice. Killing the one who enacted the justice, the Torah and Roman law always aimed to achieve. Jesus lived by the spirit in the midst of the flesh, and the guardians of Stochaic life could not tolerate the transgression of the spirit who blows where he will. They put Jesus to death, a son sacrificed to the interests of the slaves, a mature man slaughtered by children content to remain children. Jesus was killed by Torah breakers for breaking Torah, taking their penalty as his own. Because he was Israel's king and the true Israel, his death was the death of Israel herself. He was Israel's penal substitute. Because he offered his lifeblood and devotion to God in complete obedience to the Father, he was a true sacrifice that remits the sins of his people and therefore of the world. By his death he passed by the cherubim and rose again in Eden in the presence of God. Because Jesus has suffered the sacrificial passage through death to new life, those who are joined to him also die and rise to take a place at the table of their father.
This account meets several of our criteria of success. It describes Jesus' sacrifice in Levitical terms, emphasizing not only his atoning death, but also his resurrection and ascent to the Father. Jesus lives and dies and rises as a sacrifice and must move through the whole sequence to overcome the curses of Eden and Babel and Israel. This account takes the whole of the gospel narrative into account, showing how Jesus' ministry leads inexorably to his death and how his resurrection is essential to the achievement of atonement. It is a fully evangelical account because it takes the gospel narratives as atonement theology. And because it connects Jesus' atoning death and resurrection with his position as a leader of a reform movement within Israel, because it integrates ecclesiology into the heart of the atonement, it is a historically plausible atonement theology. We have not transcended the historical Jesus to see how the atonement works. We have seen how the atonement works as a historical process. This is what Paul describes as the condemnation of sin in the flesh in Romans 8, 1-4. In the death of Jesus, the elementary things were exposed as the flesh's instruments of torture. Torah is used as a pretext to murder God incarnate. Torah is not judged, and neither is Jesus, but sinful flesh is. And so the death of Jesus, an act of supreme injustice, becomes the final piece of evidence in God's prosecution of flesh. If flesh can go this far, if flesh seeks to kill God, if flesh turns Torah into a grounds for condemning the eternal Torah of God, then the case against flesh is closed. Flesh stands naked and condemned. So the cross is the judgment of this fleshly world. If the story of Jesus ended there, there would be no atonement, there would be no overcoming of the curses of Eden and Babel. There is no sacrifice if an animal is slaughtered without being transformed into smoke, and there is no human sacrifice unless death is followed by resurrection. Without the resurrection, human beings would not yet be invited into the inner sanctuary. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, would still be estranged and separated from one another. But the son born under the law, slain under the law, was raised by his father and the spirit. In that resurrection, the father put his seal on the justice of Jesus. Jesus' way of sacrifice, his way of purity and temple service, was not contrary to Torah, but Torah's fulfillment, the way approved by the God who raises the dead, the God who gave promises to Abraham. Jesus had been faithful to his father, and his father passed judgment in his favor by raising him from the dead. The resurrection vindicated Jesus as the father's beloved son, and in vindicating Jesus it condemned the way of flesh. By virtue of the resurrection it becomes clear that Jesus was innocently suffering, dying not for his own sins but as one sinned against, taking the curse for those who cursed him. In the resurrection, not only Jesus was vindicated, the way of Jesus was vindicated. Jesus as the way was vindicated. After the resurrection, because of the resurrection, the new physics of social and political life that began to take form in Jesus' ministry persisted among his disciples, a community beyond elements, beyond stochaic order, a community that combines all nations to call all the nations to die to flesh and join the ranks of the Spirit. This twofold movement of death and resurrection, of condemnation and vindication, is God's act of justification through the faith of Jesus Christ. It is God's act that establishes a just human society on earth. It dismantles the vulnerable, childish institutions of Torah, and it remakes humanity. Now, at last, the life of spirit and flesh is a reality among humankind. Jesus' death fulfilled Torah and the prophets. You meant it for evil, Joseph told his brothers, but God meant it for good. There is a double agency, a double will at work in the cross. To grasp the cross, we have to look at the event stereoscopically. There is the evil will of Jesus' enemies, who abuse the best of God's gifts to condemn God himself to death. But the purpose of God triumphed over, indeed through, that injustice, 
And so Jesus' death was the supreme act of sacrifice, the supreme purification, the supreme atonement, the destruction of the temple of God and its raising again after three days. Jesus' murderers were not priests at his sacrifice. Jesus was his own priest, laying down his life of his own volition so that he could take it up again. Jesus offered the sacrifice that Torah aimed at but could not achieve, a human sacrifice of obedience that could travel past the cherub's sword and enter Eden again. This triumph over human injustice, this establishment of the structures of justice through a supreme act of injustice, is what God had intended and purposed all along. Everything in Israel's history recorded in scripture pointed to the suffering and glory of the Christ, to the cross and resurrection, where God issued his deliverdict, where sin and death and flesh were condemned, and Jesus was declared righteous in being rescued from the dead. The death and resurrection of Jesus are God's act of justification, the delivering judgment that releases from sin, flesh, and the elementary principles of this world. Individuals who are united to Jesus experience this justification in death and resurrection in their own lives. Baptized into Jesus' death, they are justified from sin, Romans 6-7, called to live in faith that they have died to sin and to offer their bodies as instruments in God's continuing campaign for justice, his continuing war against flesh. But what happened to Jesus does not only affect those who are joined to him. In the aftermath of Jesus' death and resurrection, the world enters a new epoch with a new future. By the obedience of the last Adam, justification comes to all people, Romans 5-18. The world has a future of life rather than death because it is a future determined by the last rather than by the first Adam. Not all are in step with that future. Not all share now in the Christian era, and even Christians share in the Christian era only in part. For the time being, the spirit is in flesh. The transformation of flesh into a spiritual body is yet to come. Yet the sheer fact that a new form of individual and social life takes root in the world changes the world as objectively and as universally as you would wish, and permanently. The wrath of God, congealed as stochaic exclusions and separations, has been overcome by the sacrificial death and exaltation of the Son of Man. Thus Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Paradoxically, the life of the Spirit is more fully fleshly than the life of the flesh. Flesh is weak, limited, mortal, but life according to flesh is a massive effort to deny weakness, overcome limitation, and escape death. Flesh vaunts itself on its potency, sexual and otherwise. Flesh covers its fearfulness by protecting against vulnerabilities, protecting with violence, protecting by fomenting enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, disputes, factions. In all these ways, flesh refuses to be flesh. The last thing flesh wants to be is itself. Flesh desires to return to stochaic order, which is an infantile return to childhood. A return to stochaic life is, Paul says, itself a return to the flesh. That, we have seen, is the force of his charge in Galatians 3, 1-5, the Galatians receive the Spirit who forms the one, the one new humanity made up of Jews and Gentiles. The Spirit, who is the blessing of God to the nations, came to them as they heard the good news of the faith with faith. Then they began to seek progress in the flesh by returning to the order of stochaic purity, exclusion, sacrifice. Flesh can operate more freely under stochaea than it can under the Spirit because the Spirit is at war with the flesh, and because by design, stochaic order coheres with fleshly habits and aspirations. Flesh seeks privilege, and stochaic order provides ready-made structures of privilege. Flesh seeks to exclude and marginalize whoever is not of the right flesh, and stochaic order includes practices that can be easily turned to exclusions. Flesh lives in fear of death and harm, and stochaic order can be used as a fortress against mortality, a hero system. 
The law of the Spirit militates against all these habits by insisting that all are clothed in Christ at baptism, that all are saints by the indwelling Spirit, that all share the same food at a common table, that every member of the social body contributes to the edification of every other member and of the whole body.